We are in 2 Kings, continuing in our study of the life of Elijah the prophet. We've been working on this for many months now. We actually are getting pretty close to the end, just maybe a few more weeks, and we will wrap up the study and we'll be moving on to something else. Uh, but anyway, we're in the first chapter of the book of 2 Kings. Uh, and we just began uh, last week, and we got to verse number four, and we're going to start there this morning. But before we get to that, I want to read the, the opening part of this chapter. Now, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Ahab was a rick, wicked, evil king. His wife's name was Jezebel. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the king, or the god of Ekron? Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up. You shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather belt girded around his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And this is where we're starting today. Then the king sent to him a command, a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. When the third captain of fifty went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Verse 9. 
Then he, and that is the king, sent to him, who was Elijah, a captain of fifty, with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on top of the mount. And he said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. One of the interesting things here is Ahaziah knew where Elijah could be found. Remember, Ahab for many, many years did not know where Elijah was because God had hidden him away. But Ahaziah definitely knows where he is, and so he sends his captain, captain of the first 50, uh, to basically arrest Elijah and bring him back. Now, I do want you to know something, that this was not likely uh, just a hill. You know, when we think of a hill, we're just thinking about a little small rising. But, but really, in the Hebrew, what is conveyed here is more the understanding of a small mountain or maybe even a large mountain. As a matter of fact, the word that is here is the most common word you find in Hebrew for mountain, not hill. There's consideration to give some people. Tradition says that basically the, the Elijah was on one of the peaks of Mount Carmel. Now, remember Mount Carmel? This is where he had that contest with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And God was victorious there. And Elijah, his man, along with him. But why do you think that Elijah was on top of a mountain? Well, no, none of us can answer that question directly, but we understand that being on top of a mountain, there are certain things that you acquire there that you would not have otherwise. For instance, very often when you're on a high point, you have the ability, have a vantage point, so you can see what's going on down in the land around you, right? Many of you heard me tell the stories about when I was a kid, I grew up on top of a hill. And from, from the vantage point of our house, you could see up the road that came toward our house, you could see cars were, were at least half a mile away. And so we always knew when someone was coming, and who, usually if we knew what the car looked like, we knew who it was, especially when grandparents were coming on a particular day, and we knew they'd come about a particular time, we would all be out on the patio just waiting to get the first, first view of the car, and we would meet them halfway down the driveway as they were coming up. So sometimes being on a high place gives us a vantage point, and we could see that Elijah, we need to understand something, there's a very good chance that Elijah watched this captain, this 50, as they approached approached the mountain and began to come up. The Bible very often, what we find here is people believe that the mountains were the abode of God. And that applied not only for people who believed in the true and living God, but also for unbelieving people. In other words, people who worshipped idols and false religions. You read in the Bible over and over again how they built their, their, their pagan temples. They erected their idols on the high places. We see that over and over again uh, in the Bible. Also, there's this. Mountains tend to be a place of seclusion because for someone to really... To get to the top of the mountain, they really have to have a reason for going, right? I mean, people, a lot of people don't go out and just walk all the way up a mountain just to get to the top. Some people do that. Other people look upon people who do that as being out of their mind. Why would I do that? 
So mountains can be a good place to hide because there are not going to be that many people up on top of the mountain. Most of the people are going to be down in lower places. But when we think about the Bible, there are particular passages and particular Bible characters that come to mind when we speak about mountains. One of those would be Moses. Moses going up on Mount Sinai and spending 40 days and nights there with the Lord, and he gave him the Ten Commandments and gave him instructions for building the tabernacle and, and all kinds of things. And the Bible tells us that the, that the presence of God was so great on Mount Sinai that when Moses came down from it, that his face radiated glory, brilliant light, so much that the Israelites couldn't look upon Moses. He had to wear a veil whenever he was in the presence of the people. Maybe your thoughts went to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But I would imagine that for some of you, your thoughts went to Jesus. Because what we find in the Gospels very often is are statements like, He went up on the mountain by himself to pray, which he immediately did after the feeding of the 5,000. Familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus took Peter and James and John one day, and it doesn't tell us what mountain it was, but they went up on this high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and they saw him in his radiance and his glory. Not only that, guess who else they saw? They saw Moses, and guess who else? Elijah on top of the mountain again. They also heard the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven who said, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to what he has to say. So we can say this, a mountain would be a very appropriate place for Elijah, the man of God, to be. I don't know about you, but I love the mountains. Every time we go to the mountains, Lori and I talk about moving to the mountains. I kind of have a mountain blood in me. My grandparents had a house up near Boone, North Carolina for much of my uh, high school and college years. And, and Lori and actually had the opportunity to go there one time with me after we got married and, uh, and all of that. So we always miss the mountains. I love the mountains. Uh, and one of those is because of the coolness. I know we've, we've kind of warmed up this week. It's pretty cold at the beginning of the week. Now it's almost hot again. And some people are hallelujah. And I'm going, I wish it was colder still. That kind of thing. But one of the reasons I like to go to the mountains is because of the coolness, the freshness of the air. You get up high. The air seems to be cleaner and just all kinds of things. But we talk about mountains experiences, mountaintop experiences as Christians sometimes, right? And when, what we're talking about there is when we have these just very, very special manifestations of the glory of God in some way where we're really lifted up. It's been a while since I've had one of those. I don't know about you, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Interestingly, as the captain and his 50 soldiers make it to the summit, they find Elijah sitting there. Sitting. Well, Elijah is sitting here, King Ahaziah is lying on his deathbed in Samaria. 
kind of a contrast going on between the two of them possibly. But the captain calls him, O man of God. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? Sounds like he's acknowledging the reality that, that, that Elijah is a man of God. But I really think we can't come to that conclusion based upon the rest of the text here. It, it sounds to me probably like what was going on here. He said it in a kind of a sarcastic kind of a way. You know, the way that he was truly doubtful that Elijah really was a, God, a man of God, even though people called him God's man. We've talked about kings and how kings expect and expected whatever they commanded to be done. Remember that these men were here on the command of the king. He told them to do it. They went. They didn't question. They didn't ask why. They didn't try to put it off and say, well, can we just do it next week? The king said, go do it. And they left and they did it. Captains, I would imagine, are very used to having their commands obeyed too. I would imagine that he fully expected when he said to Elijah, come down, that he was willingly going to just leave and go with him and his 50 men. Because after all, one man is not really much of a contest for 51 well-trained soldiers. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, Now if I am of man of God, may fire come down from the heavens and consume you when you're 50. Then fire fell down from the heavens and consumed him and his 50. Can you imagine? I mean, you really wonder how much this captain was familiar with the stories about Elijah. And he just been realized it's been a little time since Mount Carmel. And maybe the, the thrill of that just kind of wore off after a while and... Uh, and maybe we're getting into the next generation. It's really just kind of a story that people are talking about uh, in those days. Uh, but I would have to imagine that was, that was such a phenomenal thing. I mean, that was an unbelievable thing of the power of God demonstrated to people. And I don't think it's something that people would forget about very easily. We can't get into this, mind's, this man's mind, so we don't know if he knew about Mount Carmel and all the other things that had taken place before that and after that. But just remember this. How did God manifest himself on Mount Carmel? How was it that God spoke out in such a way that said that this man, Elijah, is my man? How did he do that? How did he prove it? Elijah called for fire to fall down from heaven. And it did that. And remember when it did that, it consumed. Remember the, the, the altar that had been constructed there and the, and the sacrifice on it and how Elijah had instructed that, that picture after picture of water be poured upon the wood and upon the sacrifice and everything. But then when the fire from God fell down from heaven, it consumed all of it. It turned every bit of it. Even the dust disappeared. 
that same fire now falls and consumes 51 men. Interestingly enough, not very far in the future, in our future, we're going to be studying a time when a chariot described as a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire will swoop down from heaven and pick up Elijah and take him to heaven. So what's the difference? The fire of God in one case means demise. The fire of God in another another case means very great blessing. It all has to do with God's favor. One of the things that we really should look upon in this, I think, too, is this, is there was a time when people came to arrest Jesus, right? Right? Could Jesus have called to the Father in heaven to bring fire down upon his captors? Certainly. Without hesitation, Jesus allowed, Jesus allowed, just like Elijah is going to allow these men eventually to take him captive. Jesus said to one of them, or, or to them at one point, he said this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he would at once at my disposal uh, send forth more than 12 legions of angels? See, Elijah is one of those people that we look at in the Old Testament and we see foreshadowings of Christ to come in him. There's a sense in which he's a type of Christ. But he's only a shadow of Christ. He's not Christ himself who is yet to come at that time. Verse 11, At this he, the king, sent to him Elijah, another captain of fifty, with his sifty, and he answered and said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, Hurry, or immediately, right now, come down. Just notice here that King Ahaziah has lost 51 men, and he seems to not even care about that. Those lives of those 51 men were nothing to him. He could care less. No remorse. No concern. After all, he is king, and his will would be done. And so what does he do? He sends 51 more. Now, we realize that Ahaziah was basically the kind of evil king that typically reigned over Israel in those days. You understand that. He was not the exception. He was the rule. He was so much like his father, and his father was like his father, and his father was like his father. 
But just notice here that the lives of these men meant nothing to him as the king. Now, let me ask you, what is the king's responsibility? Ultimately, what is the responsibility of a king? What's the responsibility, ultimately, of the federal government in the United States? What is it? It's to protect the people, to conserve and protect the people. Not to be served by the people, not for people's lives to be thrown out the window as if they were nothing, as if they were just garbage. But it just speaks to us about how wicked and how evil these people really were. And it's interesting that this just happens to be on Sanctity of Life Sunday. So how can we compare the culture that we're in today to this culture in ancient Israel when it came to valuing human life? Elijah had offended him and the prophet will pay for it. In a sense, no matter how many soldiers it takes to make it happen. Now, you wonder if the first one or the second one knew what happened to the first one. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how these words would fall upon your ears if, if, if you were commanded to do this and you know, and you know for, as a matter of fact, that 51 guys had already gone to do it and, and they got fried on the spot? Would that really encourage you to, to go at it? Well, you need to understand that there are some people that have a mentality. It would do just that. I mean, this second captain was probably a soldier's soldier. He never, never, uh, he was the first to run into battle, and he would never run from the battle. He was Mr. Gung-Ho. He could do what no one else could do. He was going to be successful when the other one had not been successful at all. In other words, he was prideful and arrogant. And obviously, he really didn't care much about the lives of his men either. Well, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think we can say some things about these first two captains. Well, the second one was more arrogant. I mean, he not only said that the king wants you to come down, but he says to do it immediately. Don't you hesitate. You come like right now. Do you think that the love of God, the love of Christ, was in the hearts of these men? Not likely. And I would say there's some sense in which we can definitely say no. That these were pagan idol worshipers. They were products of their culture. That there were few in Israel who worshipped the true and living God in those days. That they were idol worshipers. Now, just remember how the Bible paints the picture of being an idol. It's ridiculous. People take stone, they take wood, they fashion it or metal, and they fashion it into some image, and then they bow down to it and they worship it. Some guy goes out in the woods and he cuts down a tree and he comes home and he uses part of it, the, the wood from it, to heat his house. Some of it he uses for cooking. And he takes the rest of it and he makes an idol out of it and then he bows down to it. How stupid, how ridiculous is that? 
But we need to understand something. These men were a product of their culture. If they worshipped at all, they were idol worshippers. How to know we know that they were fully, absolutely guilty? Because God's fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Unfortunately, that was probably only their beginning experience of fire from God. The truth is, we can't say this for certain, but we have every good reason to believe it, that even as we're speaking right now, they are suffering in the eternal fire of hell. Pride and arrogance. Not before Elijah so much as before God. You see, when they rejected God's man, Elijah, they also rejected God himself. Amazing. If you're familiar with the the conversion of Saul, who became Paul, on the road to Damascus described in Acts chapter 9. Remember, Paul was, Saul who became Paul was out and he was persecuting the church. He was, he was probably the premier persecutor of the early church. He was a Jewish. He was a, a Pharisee. And he was imprisoning Christians and, and, and celebrating when they were executed. And he was on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus to do the same thing. And he was confronted with Jesus on the way. And Jesus said to him, why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus directly? No, he was persecuting his church. But what Jesus is saying is that when you persecute my people, when you persecute those who are mine, you are persecuting me. You're not only messing with them, you're messing with me. I mean, you would have to be a dummy or a hard-hearted unbelievable mess to not understand that there was a big difference between Elijah's God and the God that so many people around the countryside were worshiping. That his God was the living God. Can idols talk? Can idols walk? Can idols accomplish anything? No. See, the difference is they worshipped a false god, Elijah, on the other hand. Worshipped the true God who is. Who is the living God. He's not an idol. He's not false in any way. He is true. He is real. He is the creator of this universe. He is the one that has made man in his image. He is the one who restores fallen sinful people like us to right relationship with him through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
See, these men believed that they could defeat any enemy, but they had an enemy that they seemed to be totally oblivious to, and that was themselves. The sin within them. And the fact that they had defied God over and over again, the fact that they had turned away from him to worldly, unbelievably ridiculous things. What they needed was a Savior. A Savior who was coming. He hadn't yet come. His name is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one that ever stands between a man or a woman or a child and God the Father. And he's the only one that can reconcile their relationship with one another. And he does it all the time. And if you truly believe and you know him as your Lord and Savior, then he's done that for you. Well, get this. So they get fried on the spot too. But get this. That's not enough for King Ahaziah yet. He sends another, a third captain with 50 more guys. At this, he, that's the king, sent the captain of another 50 with his 50. And the captain of the third 50 came and went up and bowed at his, on his knees before Elijah. And he beseeched him and said, man of God, now let my life and the lives of your 50 servants be respected in your eyes. Totally different. Totally different. How many times have you kneeled down before anybody? Hopefully you kneel down before God a lot, but I would probably most of us could say maybe some of us men, you know, when we uh, we uh, ask our 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 girlfriend to to marry us, maybe we got down on our knees and, and and bowed to do that kind of thing. But it's not a normal posture that people use. But you need to understand something that it's the right posture of people who actually worship. Now, don't think for a minute that this guy is worshiping Elijah. I don't think that's what's going on. But he knows, he understands that this man is God's man. That in essence, when he's bowing down on his knees now, he's bowing down before God. And he knows that's a rightful place for him to be, the right posture for him to be in. This man cares about life. He cares about the fact that he and his men are made in the image of God. And just remember this, one of the rules in the Bible is this, is a lesser always kneels before the greater. So in essence, what he's saying to Elijah by kneeling down is saying to him that you are the superior one. I am the inferior one. And in essence, because he is, Elijah is God's man, he's doing that before God. See, the two first captains were puffed up with pride, and they were arrogant. This third captain has something that they both were sorely lacking in, and that is something we might just classify as humility. He had a humble spirit. He had a humble heart.
Was he motivated by fear? Well, maybe some of that. You could understand because apparently he did know what happened to the two, two others that had come before him and their men. But it seems to go deeper than that. He seems to really know something the other two didn't know. Let me just tell you, the, the, the sinful human heart unconverted is the vainest thing in, in all of existence. So when we see real and genuine humility, we need to understand something, and that is, that comes, at least to some degree, from their maker. I know a lot of people think that people are really, really good and all of that, but what the Bible tells us is everyone has fallen in sin, that people are wicked and evil. That is their nature. So when there is real humility and, and, and gentleness, you understand something. This has to come from God. It does not come from the human heart. Real and genuine humility is always a product of the presence of God. Now, there is a false humility. I hope you understand that. It's probably one of those things, you know, the Bible teaches us that as believers we're supposed to be humble, right? And gentle, patient, all that stuff, right? Do you ever pray for humility? You ever ask God to give you a humble nature? To take your pride and arrogance and strip them from you? And give you humility? You ever pray for that? See, there's a false humility, and that's the humility that goes by this, and that is people do what looks good to other people so that people will think very highly of them. And let me tell you, that's normally what humility, the humility is that we see in people other than believers. Because only believers can real, true, God-given humility manifest itself in great ways. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle or the meek or the humble, if you want to translate it like that, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul gives us the fruits of the Spirit. He's saying here that, and he's contrasting it with what it's like for a person without the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see those things in yourself? Do other people see those things in you? If you were here last week, you heard me make this comment, and that is that as this culture around us becomes more and more secularized, Christians should stand out more and more like sore thumbs. And when I mention that, we think about being salt and being light. 
God's light in the darkness, salt in the womb. But I think there is something that escapes most of us most of the time. You see, there is an unbelieving world out there. And their opinion of you and me is this, is we are the self-righteous ones and who think and believe it's our responsibility to force our sense of morality down the throat of everybody else. That's what a Christian is. Now, why do they believe that? They believe that because very often that's exactly what they get from Christians. Judgment. And we wonder why our message turns them off. Because do you know what we're saying when we're saying those things to them? We're projecting ourselves at these perfectly moral, righteous, adjusted people. That is a lie. And they know it. Because they know our heart very often, sometimes better than we know it ourselves. They may not know exactly what you've done bad, but they know that you've done some bad things. My first experience sharing the gospel with someone was my father. And the way that conversation ended was this. Dad, either you change your ways or you're going to hell. That was my version of the gospel to my father. Now, how do you think he took it? You're right. (laughs) You're right. And in those days, you need to understand that I had just newly become a Christian, and I was just on fire for, for Jesus and, you know, and all this stuff. And, And one of the things, I was really mad at my mom and dad because I felt like they had lied to me my whole lifetime. Because both of them professed to be Christians. And so I was just really mad at them because of what I saw and what I knew and what they professed and how things just didn't seem to line up much. I had that same conversation with my dad two weeks ago. But it's very different. And how you may be one of those people you've you've tried to witness to people desperately, you've tried to witness to people your whole lifetime, and it seems like the more you witness to them, the more you push them away. Have you ever stopped to consider why? You've heard me say a bunch of times that the way to get the world's attention is to do what they don't think you will do.
Humility, my friends, will succeed where pride and arrogance fails over and over again. What people need to see in us when we come to them is not the superior one coming to the inferior one, but two people on even ground, both sinners, both guilty of themselves. But the message of the gospel is you don't have to stay there. If you want a picture of humility, look at Jesus. What humility? Think about it.